From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Because it has a medical school as part of its campus, Upstate Medical University has a variety of interesting research projects underway. And today I'm going to speak with a student who is investigating a rare neurologic condition that has shown up in a cluster of people living in the Dominican Republic near the Haitian border. HealthLink on Air welcomes Alfred or AJ Espinosa. Thank you for being here. Hey, Amber. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. Well, this rare neurological condition, pantothenate kinase-associated neurodegeneration, what is that? For short, let's just say pecan. Pecan, okay. Um, I'll just give you a brief history on it. It was first described by two physicians, German physicians, in around 1922, uh, Dr. Halliburton and Dr. Spatz, and they described it as a Halliburton Spatz syndrome. Uh, but let's fast forward a little bit, and since they were both part of the Nazi regime, we decided to change the name to pecan. So that's oh. how we have the name today. Was it found in Germany? You said uh, it was German not that it was found, it was just described. Or described, It was first okay. described in Germany. Okay. Uh, I believe it was a family of five. Huh. Family of nine, actually, with five affected. Okay. So they were the first to describe it, and they had the naming rights. But PCAN is part of a, a group of neurodegenerative disorders known as NBIA, which stands for Neurodegeneration with Brain Iron Accumulation. And as, as the name implies, there's a, an accumulation of iron in the brain. More of specific. iron, like... Uh... Yeah, yeah, the actual, like the metal, the, huh. uh, the, the element. And it, it accumulates in an area of the brain known as a, the basal ganglia. And the basal ganglia is a, is a group of structures, primarily cell bodies, uh, that is best known for its involvement in facilitating movement. And it's also found deep within the cerebral hemispheres. And there's one structure I want to focus on. It's from the basal ganglia. It's called the globus pallidus. Can I ask you something first? Of course. How does the iron, is, are people eating iron? To, I mean, what, what makes them get this iron accumulating in their brain? They have a mutation in their gene. Uh, it's a gene known as a PANK2 gene. And the biochemistry behind it is complex. But that mutation, what, what happens is that they have just a buildup of iron. So it's not that they're adding anything. It's it's iron that's already part of us that's uh, that just doesn't get dealt with by the body. Exactly. Properly. Normally okay. we have a way of processing or metabolizing that iron, but due to this faulty gene, they accumulate it. And the area they accumulate it in is in this basal ganglia. So how does a person with this disorder discover that they have the disorder? Like what sorts of symptoms might they feel? So at, it depends. There's two phenotypes. And phenotypes is um, observable characteristics of the disorder, right? The first we have, let's talk about classical. Classical is primarily seen when you're in the first decade of life, classical pecan, and you start falling at the age of five, you just start falling, you, ha uh, you start running, you fall, and, and your parents start to notice that you are just not as active and you're more clumsy than you should be. So they bring you in and a doctor takes an MRI and what he sees is a very interesting image. It's known as the eye of the tiger, uh, eye of the tiger sign, and you can, in the MRI, I see the buildup of iron in the basal ganglia. Huh. Uh, and it, it, it's, it's, it, it would be best to have a photo to show, right? But if, if you were looking at the surrounding structures around the basal ganglia, it looks like the face of the tiger. And the basal ganglia itself, with the iron deposits, it looks like the eye. And that's how they, that's the primary way they use to diagnose pecan. Can a neurosurgeon go in and just remove the iron deposits? And It doesn't work. It doesn't like work that. that way? No, it doesn't. It would be amazing if it did. Um, these iron deposits, they, it's not completely understood why and how, but they, they, they tend to just cause, well, since the area in the basal ganglia that I want to focus on is the globus pallidus, and that's the area in pecan which shows iron accumulation. And, and the reason I want to speak about that is the globus pallidus, I want to refer to it as, as a break. 
simply because it, it supplies inhibitory signals, which counterbalance the excitatory signals that come from other areas in the brain. So is this the part of the brain that has to do with uh, physical movement? Exactly. It's actually fine-tunes. Well, it doesn't fine-tune, but it's involved with movement. Okay. Okay. And what happens is like this, the, the globus pallidus and its inhibitory signals, which counterbalance the excitatory signals, what that allows for is basically smooth, accurate, and voluntary movements. And when this signal is interrupted, this balance of signals is interrupted, as it is in pecan, due to the increased iron, that's when we see symptoms such as dystonia. And uh, that's dystonia lack is, of muscle move? It's, it's basically sustained, uncontrollable muscle contractions. Okay. And they can be so unstable or contraction can be so strong that it actually changes your posture. So you can see some of these patients, you can see that they have, they're twisted, they're very rigid, they're spastic, they're just, they're tense. Uh, dysphagia and dysarthia are other symptoms. And dysphagia is difficulty swallowing, dysarthia is difficulty speaking. And the reason they have that is their tongue, normally in these patients, their tongue is protruding out. And since it's a neurodegenerative disorder, it affects muscles. One of the tongue is one of the biggest muscles in the body, and it, it protrudes out. So they have trouble speaking and trouble swallowing. It's neurodegenerative. So does that mm -hmm. mean it gets worse over time? It does. And it's, okay. if you look at time lapses of these patients, you can see them when they were eight, and they look beautiful kids. And you see a picture of them when they're like 15, 16. And from falling too much, their, their teeth are broken. They, their tongue is protruding out. They're very spastic. They're rigid and, and it's it's very disheartening so is there any treatment not currently there are some but they haven't been proven yet they do iron chelators and that's that's basically the only treatment they have right now iron chelator is that a way to try to remove it's exactly what that is yeah okay. it's a way of trying to but since there's not there, there's a barrier around your brain the blood-brain barrier and it's very hard to get drugs to pass through that barrier so it's very hard to target the actual symptom um, and you don't want to you know, give someone iron chelators too, because you can make them anemic if, you know, you don't really target the brain. This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with medical student A.J. Espinoza about his research on a rare neurologic condition, P-K-A-N, P-C-A-N. So talk to me about the epigenetics of P-C-A-N. Epigenetics is a complex word, and, and I like to translate it. Well, the literal translation of it is above genetics. And the scientific meaning is the study of changes in humans caused by modifications to gene expression rather than alterations to the genetic code itself. I understand that's a mouthful, but this is the best way I can explain it. Um, let's use a scenario. Let's say you have an identical twin. And at birth, you two were separated. God forbid, but you two were separated. And you grew up in a nice suburban area with all the resources you needed to succeed, were well-fed, well-nourished. Your twin, on the other hand, your identical twin, grew up in the opposite spectrum of that. He did not have the resources to succeed, was not well-nourished, and not even well-loved. <laughs> um, some magical occurrence, you guys meet 50 years later, and there's a scientist there. And he decides to look at your genome. He takes some DNA sample sequences and looks at your genome. What he will see is that both your genomes are similar. Or actually, they're both the same. However, the modifications to that genome are different for both of you. The way I can best explain that is, let's think of the genome as a paragraph. So you and your identical twin have the exact same paragraph with the same letters, the same words. However, the spaces and punctuation in your paragraph are different from that of your identical twin, which ultimately can affect the expression of or the interpretation of that paragraph. The same thing with your genome. The genome, the spaces and, and punctuation in your genome compared to your twins are different, which causes a different expression of genes. 
So bringing that back to Pecan, what I'm trying to get to is that we have patients on opposite end of the spectrum when it comes to symptoms. Some of them, they both have Pecan, but some of them have very severe symptoms, other have not so severe symptoms. Why is that and how? And that's the question we're asking there. That's another reason we're there. We believe that there's some kind of epigenetic interplay going on here. And to pursue this uh, hypothesis, we are looking to perform a whole exome sequencing in hopes of looking for possible genetic interplay. So whole exome sequencing, is that a genetic it's, test? It's, it's basically looking at the paragraph. Oh, okay. You know, and looking at where the punctuation and, and the spaces are in your genome. And that's one of our goals, is doing that and trying to understand why some have some very severe symptoms to the point where they're wheelchair-bound, while others can walk. And it's, it's very interesting. Now, what is the theory about why this disease is showing up in a cluster of people living in the Dominican Republic near the Haitian border? So that's actually the most interesting part, and one of the reasons we're there. I want to mention that the prevalence of pecan, the, the, the amount of times you see it in the population, is about one in a million. That's worldwide. However, in this population, this remote town known as Barahona, Cabral Barahona, is about 15,000 people. And of those 15,000 people, we have 40 confirmed cases. And that's not taken into account the people that have not been diagnosed yet or those that may have the disorder but have yet to show any symptoms. So regardless, though, I also have to mention that in this population of 15,000, there's also 2,500 known carriers. So if we do a little quick statistical analysis, it's not that hard to come up with the fact that the chances of two people meeting up who are both carriers in this town are relatively high. And them having a child with pecan is also pretty high. So this pecan is... um autosomal recessive. Mm-hmm. Please correct me if I'm wrong. But no, that's right. So at conception, each sibling of an affected individual has 25% chance of being affected, 25% chance of not being affected, and 50% chance of being an asymptomatic carrier. That's correct. And yes. on this, in, in this community, there's 2,500 known carriers. Mm-hmm. So the odds are, yeah. are higher. They are much higher they are. than the general population. And wow. It's, um, I, we believe that the reason for the prevalence in heightened prevalence in this community is simply because a lot of people don't really move from this area. And some people have relations with third, fourth cousins that they may have not been aware that they were related. And when you have that kind of genetic interplay going on, it leads to things such as pecan. But aren't there other uh, communities in the world where people don't move very much? There and are. Do you see this popping up in... We don't. Huh. That's another reason we are there. Oh, no, it's... One of the things that just makes you wonder, and why we're there too, is we want, we want to develop and deploy like a rapid informative test for this population, something real time. An example I can give about that is what this test would do first, first and foremost, is it would educate those that are carriers and let them know about their genetic background and the possibilities of their children having pecan. Uh, a story I would like to share about is a, is a grandmother who came to us, and she had recently been there three months before on the trip that we were there prior. She was swabbed, we had her DNA sampled and her genome sequenced, and also that of her grandchild. When we came back, we came back to deliver the news that her grandchild was unaffected and he was not gonna have pecan. Something that is indescribable. I've, I've heard of breaking the bad news and I've never done it, but I got to break the good news and one of the best feelings I've had. However, she had to wait three months. And that's, that's a long time to wait with something when it comes to like pecan. So that, that time of waiting, we want to shorten that. We want to be able to do something while they're there, be able to tell them the results within hours, two hours, within the day, you know, and that's one of our main goals. So tell me how you got involved in this research as a, as a medical student at Upstate. 
So I took an opportunity and I seized it. I was in, in the hall here at Weiss Garden and I saw Dr. Middleton reading one of the abstracts or something that they hang on, on the wall. And I remember listening to him in the lectures last year and I asked him, I, I said, I'm really interested in neurology. It, it fascinates me. It's something that I, I truly enjoy. How can I get involved? And he, and he told me, he's like, well, what do you know about pecan? I was like, uh, nothing. But I would like to get involved in any way I could. So from there, that, that just began the relationship between me and Dr. Middleton. And we began working together. And from there, he invited me to come to the DR. And it, it was a humbling experience, being able to practice what I learned in the books, out on the field, uh, working with people who truly deserve. These, these people are, they live in a pretty impoverished area. And it's tough. And just being able to work with them and supply what they want to know. It's, it's a humbling experience. Is it difficult to work on something that ha it, it's such a devastating diagnosis? Is it hard to work in that area? It's definitely tough. It's definitely a tough thing to see patients like that, um, especially when, you know, you, you, would, you would imagine that having this type of disorder, you would be very, you know, distraught. It would be something that, you know, just brought, you know, you would lose hope. That would be my opinion. But if you look at these patients, they're some of the happiest people you've ever seen. They, they may be twisted, rigid, and spastic, but you know they're smiling. They're having a great time. And that's another thing I would actually like to mention, thank you for mentioning it, is that you know, even though you have all these symptoms, dystonia, dysphagia, dysarthia, these patients, like their, their, cogni their cognition is typically spared. So they can understand everything. They can think, they can you know, feel, they can be empathetic, right? And I want to bring up the video Tough as Iron because I think it captivates a beautiful moment in which there's a patient, which I actually had the experience to meet, and she is there holding on to a, a picture of herself graduating from an academic institution. And even though you can clearly see the symptoms on her, how she's twisted, how she's super just tight, um, you can see just the gratitude and the appreciation, the happiness in her face from you know her academic achievement. And it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing to, to look at. And, I, and, I, and this scene is like a perfect reminder of a quote mentioned in the video about these patients. And it goes, they are prisoners in a body which refuses to obey their own commands. Well, that video, Tough as Iron, um, we'll put a link to it at the mm -hmm. healthlinkonair.org website where we'll be posting this interview so that people can click through to see it. Okay. Um, I Thank appreciate you. you talking to me about this. It's very interesting that you're able to get involved in this during your educational career. My guest has been Upstate medical student A.J. Espinoza. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.